One mother, one mission. To create a world where families thrive. Dr. Anne Shalfand, internationally acclaimed clinical psychologist, family therapist, author and mother of four children, brings you powerful and practical parenting techniques from her clinical and personal experience. Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in the house. Welcome to the Annie Centre podcast. I'm Dr. Anne Chalfont, and today I'm interviewing Jade Chapman, who has authored a beautiful book called Understanding Oscar. Autism awareness has certainly grown in the last five to ten years. As a society, we are more knowledgeable about the various challenges of people with ASD, or Autism Spectrum Disorder. More clinicians are specialising in working with people with ASD. Medical and allied health professionals have definitely become better at recognising, assessing and more accurately diagnosing ASD. The range of options for treatment and early intervention have grown exponentially and much of the government and media focus, both positive and negative, around the NDIS has centred particularly on the support needs of those with ASD. They represent a very large proportion of people who are participants of the NDIS. But what do children understand about other children who may have autism? After all, autism is a developmental disorder that typically first presents in early childhood. How do children learn to relate to others around their age who might have autism? And what resources are there to assist children and their families in becoming more understanding and developing a more positive understanding of what life might be like for a child with ASD? Enter the newly released children's book, Understanding Oscar. Its debut author, Jade Chapman, is a proud mother of three boys, including Oscar, the middle child, who has ASD and is currently nonverbal or has no speech. In her search for resources to explain ASD to Oscar's siblings and extended family, but especially to his older brother Banjo, Jade found that child-friendly options were few and far between. Recognising that children learn well through storytelling, she's created a beautifully illustrated book that shares her own experience. The book aims to reach out and help all families with children who have special needs, and it also promotes a positive message around acceptance and inclusion. I loved reading Understanding Oscar. It gives a realistic insight into the daily challenges that families can face but it also gives children and families some ideas for how best to balance the different needs of a child with ASD and those of their siblings in a way that demonstrates empathy and accounts for each child's different views and preferences. I wanted to speak with Jade not only about this excellent book, but also about her journey to date as a parent of a child with ASD, the trials and the triumphs. So... Jade, can we start with um, talking a little bit about your journey with autism so far? What, what did you know about autism before Oscar was diagnosed with ASD? Yeah, look, I knew very little about autism before Oscar's diagnosis. We had no autistic family members on either side of mine and my husband Matt's families. Uh-huh. So, It was really from watching TV segments and news topics on autism that popped up over the years that made me aware of this. And and what was it about Oscar's presentation that that flagged for you that there might be something not quite right, that you should seek some some professional support? Not long after Oscar's first birthday, Matt and I noticed a regression in his behaviour and development. He no longer responded to his name when being called. He avoided eye contact. Interaction with others became minimal. And we noticed that he also had stopped babbling, waving and clapping his hands. Uh And was that a a, a dramatic shift that you saw at that time after the 12-month 
period because for some families the trajectory is I mean for all families really the trajectory with autism these days is very different but often it's the case that children may be developing slowly certain skills um, so they may be slow to acquire some of these milestones but it sounds like what you're saying were these were things that Oscar was already doing and then went, went backwards or lost the skill is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the first year, Oscar was hitting, if not exceeding his milestones. And then, like as I mentioned, not long after his first birthday, we noticed um, he started to lose some of these. So that was definitely a red flag for us. I have always been aware that, you know, that children, they grow and develop at their own pace. Um, and, you know, although Oscar was quick at hitting his milestones, initially I did think, look, maybe he might just be slowing down yes. and that was okay. Yes. But definitely, um, you know, myself and Matt were on top of it. Yes. Oscar being our second child as well, although we didn't compare him to Banjo at first, yes. there were definitely some signs that, that showed up. So, um, look, initially we thought um, we could make an appointment with an ENT yes. as Oscar's older brother Banjo had gluey when he okay. was young uh-huh. and he went down the path of getting grommets. So okay. Matt and I wondered if Oscar might be the same given some of our concerns. Mm-hmm. However, when the ENT confirmed his ears were clear, and there was no abnormality from a formal hearing test, Mm -hmm. our concerns grew. Okay. And so then where did you head from there, ruling out any nose and throat issues? Yeah, so it was actually Matt who first brought up autism. Uh He was Googling one day and noticed that some of the early signs pointed to Oscar. Uh Um, At first, I admit, I shook it off. Um, You know, every child develops at their own pace but look after a couple of minutes of processing what Matt said I asked to have a look at these Google sites and although OSC didn't tick all the boxes there was certainly enough there to raise concern and seek medical help so I made an appointment with our GP the very next day and then at our request he was able to fast track us into a paediatrician. Okay fantastic and then you saw the paediatrician? And then what happened to ask after that? Yeah, of course. Um, Look, we saw the paediatrician and he cited early signs of autism Um, and he therefore gave us a referral onto a local diagnostic service, which we saw four months later and, um, and we went there to get a more thorough assessment. So essentially we received Oscar's autism diagnosis twice. Okay. And how old was Oscar then by the time he was formally diagnosed? Oh, look, so he formally diagnosed would have been 17 months. Okay. Um, which is, look, very early, so, but yeah. um, he was showing all of the signs and, you know, his paediatrician um, came with lots of experience, mm. um, so was very well across um, the diagnosis. And, you know, myself and Matt trusted him as well. And to be honest, in that in that period, you know, the uncertainty period, not knowing, yes. um, you know, what, you know, what was um, to become of Oscar, if, if we were going to, you know, receive a diagnosis or not, yes. we did do quite a bit of research. And so, um, you know, although it was a shock, we did feel we were quite prepared as well. Mm. I think... There's something about your experience that, um, you know, I as a diagnostician myself find interesting in that you were proactive. Uh, you mentioned, you know, Matt was already seeking information. Mm-hmm. He spoke to you about it. You went to the GP straight away. Uh, it, it sounds like you were advocating with the GP to, to fast track getting into the paediatrician. You mentioned trusting the paediatrician and their advice. Um, Absolutely. And then getting access to a, a more comprehensive assessment. And that's not necessarily the, the norm I think for families that, uh, you know, I would see who for various reasons, understandable reasons, may struggle with coming to terms even with the idea of a diagnosis, um, let alone pursuing it more actively in order to get access to intervention. So what what message would, you know, as a parent now of a child who has ASD and who who 
did actively seek diagnosis. What, why did you feel that that was the appropriate path for you? What message would you want to convey to families, I suppose, about that process? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the, the experience of receiving um, an autism diagnosis, um, you know, I still remember those, those days so clearly, mm. um, being filled with, you know, tears and mixed emotions. Um, first and most importantly, it was a relief to Matt and I, to be honest. Mm. Um, after months of, of uncertainty, not knowing what lay ahead for us, mm. we finally had an answer mm. and we knew he was going to be okay. This, you know, it wasn't life-threatening. The diagnosis would help us better, better understand our little man mm. and moving forward, we could gain support and access to funding, which would help give us every opportunity to thrive mm. and be the best person he could be. Mm. Um, and, but, you know, on the other side, being completely honest, you know, Matt and I felt deeply overwhelmed and I'm sure it's the feeling that, you know, many parents um, that you've seen feel when they come and see you. Yes. And, you know, some of them might put it off because as parents, you always envisage what your family future will look like, yes. especially with your children. And to see so much uncertainty and challenges now surrounding your child or us in our case, it was heartbreaking. So on I yeah, clearly remember the diagnosis. It was a bittersweet because, you know, um, we we knew that we could move on and that we would be able to help Oscar. But also there was, you know, there was there was some sadness that came with it as well. Yeah, and I think your comment about you know, the vision that you have as parents for your family and how you'd like that to unfold. I mean, we all, you're, you're absolutely right, Jade, have a vision for what we want our, you know, children to uh, experience as they develop and grow and what we'd like the family experience overall to be like and having to shift and change those ideals and, and those visions or the, you know, the, the images that we have is a really difficult process for families. But what I'm hearing from you is is the ability to put that to one side in, in a way and, and, and keep focus on the things that you gain out of access to intervention. So Yeah, absolutely. With, with that in mind, can we talk a little bit about any of the interventions that you tried for Oscar, what your experience was like with those and if there were any that you might have thought were more questionable than others? Because I think one of the reasons I'm asking that is, is again, as a clinician, who's worked in this field for a while, I know from family feedback and from my own uh, experience that there's many different options out there and some of them uh, can seem like, that, you know, there's snake oil salesmen and, and others seem like there's a bit more evidence based to them. Mm -hmm. and it's really hard for families. As you said, you use Google. I mean, the University of Google has great resources but equally there's a lot of misinformation out there so it's very hard for families to discern what is going to be actually truly helpful and what yeah. is, frankly, a load of rubbish. So how did you go through that process and discern that yourself and Matt, and what was that experience like? Yeah, look, there is a lot of questionable advice out there and alternate medicines and procedures that claim to cure or recover autism. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose my advice to parents would be to do your research, you know, are things evidence-based? and only try things that you feel may help or benefit your child, not invade them. So we, um, Matt and I, have been fortunate um, to have not come across a bad experience. We've really, um, we've really just stayed focused on, you know, the mainstream therapies that are out there that um, are focused and help engage Oscar and. Um, help him be the best person that he can be. So, um, you know, we've, we've been doing speech and occupational therapy, both these ther therapies we continue to this day. Mm -hmm. And over time, we've seen us build up some wonderful interactions and relationships through the one-on-one -on -one engagement he has through here. Um, I think it's also... It's also common for parents once they receive a diagnosis that they just want to dive in and do everything straight away. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really important to take a step back and be conscious not to overload your child with therapies. Mm -hmm. Rather, um, you know, when they're ready, try new things. So, you know, we've 
engage psychologists. We've um, we've explored music therapy, which has been wonderful through Oscar's school. Um, we've become involved in all abilities, community sports. And, you know, we're currently looking into animal-assisted therapy through Assistance Dogs Australia, which has actually had a really good review. But as I said, it's always been, um, you know, Google and, you know, we even laughed back then um, because you've you've got to be so careful when you Google things. Um, But, you know, like when Matt found the, you know, early signs for autism, he was Googling off you know, wonderful resources and, you know, they were well-known um, companies and organisations and that. So so we feel, felt very confident there. But definitely, you know, along the way when you Google, you know, things like snake skin oil um, and I'm trying to think what else, like camel's milk stem cells. Yeah. It is. It is shocking. And, you know, especially that, um, like I understand parents, you know, you, you do feel desperate, um, you know, and it's just unfortunate that there is uncertainty in this industry yeah. as, you know, there is a lot of false hope getting sold out there to desperate parents. Yeah. And I love your comment about being confident in, in the knowledge that you have of your own individual child and what they're like and pacing Absolutely. that then according to their development, which will be different to another child with autism. Um, and their development and, and their pace. So really matching that and the description around some of the things that you've tried for Oscar over time, but it's been at the right time um, in his life. Hence, you know, things like maybe it's you know now more the appropriate time for the assisted, um, you know, d- d- dog or animal therapy, but it wouldn't have been the case, you know, earlier on in the picture when you were focusing more on speech and OT. And you need those building blocks don't you, of, of, of starting with some basics and then as the child develops and progresses, adding more layers in, I guess, of intervention. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, and look, um, you know, going back a couple of years ago, um, you know, there were certain things, you know, that couple of years ago, Oscar was still in preschool. So to be honest, even to get him to sit and attend and stay on task yes. was, you know, a big thing for him. But, you know, over time we've worked up and he now thrives with one-on-one engagement with therapists. So, um, and that's why, you know, and Matt, we've just come to the point of, oh, okay, let's let's maybe look at animal assistance therapy, you know, because he's going to be with, um, you know, an OT. Um, it's going to provide, you know, extra layers um, of assistance for, you know, social engagement and communication skills. So, is really come to that place now that we feel that we're ready and, you know, but if we had have done that two years ago, it would have been so overwhelming for him. But it would have been stressful for us too because you do have to realise that, um, you know, although you do have a child with a disability, um, you have to enjoy them as well yes. and you have to enjoy your other children in life. You've, yes. you've got to get that, um, you know, that, that equal balance to be happy, for everyone to be happy. Yes, that's right. I think that's such an important point. And children do thrive for, obviously, when there is that balance across the whole family. I think that's a really um, overlooked point in general, the one that you're making now, Jade. So what other support have you had through this journey, either from extended family or friends or other professionals? Yeah, we are... um, so grateful we've got a wonderful village of people um, from immediate family and friends to therapists. Um, we've yeah, never been shy of, you know, um, asking for help, but we've, we know that, um, that there are a lot of people out there willing to help us and to help Oscar as well. So for that, we're grateful. Um, I must say... Um, Matt and I are beyond grateful for um, for being able to access and manage all of these therapies um, and and that financial assistance through the NDIS yes. because therapy does not come cheap. No. Um, but then, you know, along with this, you know, through community networking and that, you know, we've also been made aware of, you know, free workshops and information sessions on autism that's been extremely beneficial over the years. And look, last year I was also fortunate enough to attend a program recommended by Oscar Beachy, 
um, which was also made possible through the support. Fantastic. And again, coming back to that idea of layering, you know, supports over time, as you said, the NDIS has, has presumably given the most in terms of funded-based intervention, but when you layer interventions and pace them at the right stage, uh, I think one of the arguments of, of, of the NDIS is, is, or at the moment certainly the government seems very concerned about auditing and making sure that people aren't overusing funds but I think you know in the instance of, of your experience when you're when you're allocating those funds in a way that's sensible and really well matched to the needs of your child at that particular point in time you're providing them with skills and the building blocks so that over longer periods of time there's less need for perhaps for intensive support once they're you know accessing school and maybe there's some assistance to school you mentioned the assistant animal therapy now so other levels of support that aren't as intensive and uh, you know, f- reliant on you know, larger amounts of funding as as time goes on. Yeah, that's true. And look, we've we from the very beginning always um, only looked at what Oscar has needed. Um, we haven't unnecessarily, you know, researched for other benefits. You know that that we could you know take from the NDIS because you know it is a pool and it's not just available to us. But it's, you know, it's, it's out there to so many families and, you know, you just love to, um, to be able to make sure that, you know, each and every child or person under NDIS can have access to the support um, within their own means so they can, you know, better themselves and make, you know, every day, um, you know, as easy for them as possible. Such a hard one for families, I think, because uh, obviously people want to do the very best they can for their kids. But as, as yeah. you're rightly saying, there's a pool of limited resources, and somehow navigating that, I think, would be really difficult. But coming to this idea of helping families and, and understanding that there are others that are in need, then can you tell me? Let's talk about the book. Can you tell me a bit about why specifically you chose this format to try and assist families? Um, yeah. So look, I. One of the best way children learn um, is through storytelling. So I felt that sharing a relatable family perspective on autism uh, accompanied with beautiful illustrations was a wonderful way to raise awareness but also promote acceptance of all children who are different. Mm -hmm. And the focus of understanding Oscar... uh, uh, from, from what I can see, and I've read the book several times now, I think it's a beautiful book and recommended it to, to many colleagues and clients. Um, Jade, it seems to be twofold. One is about, if I'm right, raising awareness of ASD or autism more broadly and, and the other is the sibling experience and the broader family experience and the, pro, you know, the sort of ups and downs of that. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about the sibling experience? You mentioned Banjo already. He's the eldest, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And then there's George, who's the youngest. George, he is, yep. Okay. And so what's their experience been like in in living with autism and living with Oscar's autism in your family? Yeah. And look, you know, living with autism is different for each family. Um, For us at home, raising an autistic child whose biggest challenge is language and communication has been extremely hard. Hard first and foremost on Oscar, but then also on our family too, in particular his siblings. Um, You know, in the early days, we didn't encounter too much trouble as Oscar's needs were met easily. So, you know, as a baby, he'd cry if he was hungry, tired, or, you know, in need of a nappy change. However, when he became a toddler, things got a lot more challenging. So, not having the words or nonverbal cues to express himself mm-hmm. brought much frustration, um, which in turn would, you know, lead to tantrums and then at times lengthy meltdowns. So mm-hmm. they were really difficult times, mm-hmm. um, sometimes hard to look back on. And, How you know, some of those meltdowns last? Look, I, I know in comparison to some children, um, not as long, but, mm-hmm. you know, it could be five minutes to, you know, 45 minutes before he would really calm down. It's really um, and it's intense, isn't it? And it is intense. Yeah. And it's, you know, it was always trying to find 
the right way um, to talk openly about it as what we always have with Banjo and now George because, you know, Banjo at the time, um, you know, he, he didn't understand, I suppose. Uh, he He's always known Oscar to be a bit different, but, you know, um, his behaviour was so different to his and because of that, obviously, our parenting to Oscar had to be different to Banjo as well. So, How old is, is Banjo now? So Banjo is now eight. He'll be nine in August. And Oscar? And Oscar just turned seven last week. And George is? And George is three. Okay, so they're quite close together. They're relatively close together in age. And, yep. and so Banjo would have been, at the time of Oscar's diagnosis, how old would he, he have would been? Have he would have been almost four years old. Yeah, so that's a hard age, isn't it, to try and understand and make sense of what's happening, as you said, with things like major meltdowns and the lack of communication and trying to get yeah. it all out for a four-year-old. It was. And, look, you know, in the early days after receiving Oscar's diagnosis, yeah. I remember searching high and low to find a good book mm-hmm. that I could read to Banjo to explain what autism was. Yep along with why it affects different people in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that there were plenty of books and resources out there for adults and mm-hmm. carers, mm-hmm. but not so much for siblings and young children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having seen firsthand how valuable education um, can be in helping children like Oscar be understood and accepted for who they are, mm-hmm. um, that's why, you know, I had the idea to create a children's book based on our family's experience. Mm. Um, But, you know, the benefit was, you know, throughout the whole process, you know, Banjo, you know, from the manuscript to the choosing of illustrations, Mm. et cetera, he was always involved, um, which I think is really important. Yes, absolutely. And so now that they're, they're that little bit older, all of them in terms of their stages of development, and for Banjo, who's... Now eight, you said, a bit older right. in terms of understanding as well. How would you describe their relationship with each other? It's really strong. Um, Banjo just has a general love and understanding that he shows to Oscar yeah. and I am just, I'm so proud of him. We can be, um, you know, we can be out in public or, you know, for instance, during the school holidays we had some friends over and, you know, Oscar was, you know, he was he, he just wasn't having a good day. He um he's nonverbal, so he used lots of vocalizations and I remember one of his mates, she said, Oh, why why does Oscar keep squealing? And, you know, that that it was a genuine question. Yeah. Um and without hesitation, Banjo just said to him, Oh, Oscar's autistic. Um, he can't talk yet, so he sometimes makes noises when he needs or wants something. And once he once he said that to his friend, it was just like, oh, no worries. And, you know, they kept playing and going about his business. So, look, um, not only is he a great brother, but I think he's a wonderful advocate for, you know, for children who are different because he he's, you know, known from a very young age about Oscar and, um, you know, he's, yeah, just extremely proud of him and to our benefit now, you know, we've got George. So Matt and I do spend a bit of time sitting down with George because, you know, he's coming out with the questions now too. Oh, why is Oscar not talking? So obviously Matt and I are here, but, you know, he's, he's got his big brother as well who can help explain a bit more about us. And presumably through what you've described of Banjo's um, incredible maturity really for an eight-year-old and understanding of his brother and empathy, um, George it, has that sort of modelled for him as well in the way Banjo acts towards it Oscar. I think a lot of siblings, well, I probably go as far as saying all siblings that have, um, you know, a brother or sister um, who have a disability, um, they've got, yeah, wonderful traits, um, certain traits that cannot be taught but just comes with, you know, having the responsibility of, you know, being a sibling, um, and empathy is a big one, yeah. and it's something that's noticed by a lot of family and friends, or even just general people in the public. If we're out and about, 
they can see, yeah, just the way, you know, Banjo's caring nature towards Oscar and the whole situation as well. What a beautiful, what a beautiful story and account. And, and I love the fact that the, the book, you know, as you said, the fact that there was such a lack of resources for kids to understand ASD, that you, you created this with support and collaboration with Banjo, um, allows the child to understand at their level what's going on and then the descriptions that Banjo gives now to his peers, I can imagine that that's more, more acceptable for a child his age to hear from another child their age um, what the simple description is or the simple rationale rather than it always coming from an adult, oh, you know, Oscar does this because of that and this is a way to understand him. Children often are more accepting when it's coming from the same age peer. Exactly. And, you know, I think it's, it's important to know as well that, you know, that siblings um, are not alone in this. I think, you know, in the early days when, you know, autism was only really spoken within our family, we, we hadn't got to a stage where, where we were openly talking about it. But, you know, Banjo may have felt a little bit alone um, on our journey, but, you know, through opening up and getting out in the community and meeting other families and that too, it's, um, it's we actually feel quite privileged to be a part of a community that is so understanding and accepting, um, you know, and, and that we can reach out to others to share, you know, the joys as well as the challenges and yes. and feel okay about that as well. And that just doesn't go for, you know, for the adults, but siblings as well. We've, we've made some really great connections with friends that will be lifelong and I know, you know, Banjo will be drawn to them because our circumstances are quite similar. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes the sibling experience is one where kids can can lack self-esteem because they feel like, uh, you know, that there's different levels of attention, you know, again, understandably so because of the needs of, of the child with ASD. Um, you know, there's, there's not as much attention on them or the rules are different for them or... Uh, you know, life is more challenging, so you know, confidence can be uh, reduced and, as I said, self-esteem and things like that. But it sounds like for Banjo, or I wonder if for Banjo, I suppose, as a clinician, I'm wondering whether the fact that he's been a part of this book and this story and a part of advocating for Oscar in his own childlike way, whether that's been a benefit to his confidence and to his self-esteem. I think it has, and... Um, we've been fortunate to uh, to take the book into his school, which was wonderfully received. And um, obviously there was great feedback from the teachers. But, you know, even for him, he's saying, you know, he, he's on the playground and students of all grades are coming up and, you know, saying really lovely things about the book. So I think that makes him feel really important too and proud, proud that, um, you know, that through our story, uh, you know, he's he's been there to help raise awareness and, you know, it's kids are listening and, and understanding. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's fantastic. Jade, what, what key messages would you most want people to take from your book, Understanding Oscar? I would love for parents and children like our family to have open discussions and celebrate difference. Mm-hmm. It's also really important to remember that an autistic child is still a kid. They still like to laugh, have fun and mm. play just as you do. Mm. I loved the images in the book um, of that. You can see that coming through so clearly in these gorgeous illustrations, the pictures at the beach, jumping on the bed together, the exuberance of that. Um, and, and, and exactly as you said, that did occur to me when I was looking through it that, um, you know, and we and we we forget that sometimes, that a child with autism is still a child um, and, and still are open to those sorts of fun, you know, child experiences and, uh, and that th- those are so important for them to access in their own unique way. Absolutely. Um, as we say in this household, different, not less. Um, and love needs no words. You, you know, you don't... Um, you don't need to be, you know, talking all the time and and that you, there are so many beautiful interactions that we see, you know, with the boys that um, 
they're just priceless. And, yeah, so we've learned over time, Banjo in particular, um, to, you know, to include the whole family. If, if we're going to do something, you know, let's choose something that we all enjoy doing because if we do that, then as a family, it, it's going to be a success and, and we're going to have a great time. Whereas, you know, even, you know, even for Banjo, if, if I said, oh, let's go shopping, well, he's, he's not going to enjoy doing that and I don't blame him. So, you know, we're very much an outdoors family. A lot of it is led from Oscar because he, um, yeah, just loves being out in nature, exploring, and it just so happens that, you know, myself, Matt, um, Ben, Joe and George love doing that too. So um, as long as we can keep creating, you know, happy experiences, um, it'll be a positive feel in the family for us all. And I think coming back to, you know, intervention and the more clinical side of things, what what one thing that we know in the literature and the research that, that works very well is, is interventions that involve, uh, you know, again, as you said, it doesn't have to have a heavy language or communication or spoken focus, but, you know, uh, sensory social routines and certain games and, and, uh, you know, child-led activities where it is about finding the fun, finding the smile, um, finding the moment, um, if you like, in order to create opportunities for a child with autism or ASD to imitate um, those you know, behaviours in their siblings or in other children or in their therapist or in their parents. So it, it, it does feed back into, I think, building skills, even though you're not necessarily intentionally doing that when you're going off to the beach or going to the park together or, you know, digging for worms in the backyard or things like that. I agree completely, yep. Can I ask you, um, just apart from the book, Jade, about some broader, you know, now that you've walked this journey for, for a while and and uh, seen, you know, from different angles, obviously, you know, really put yourself in Banjo's shoes and Oscar's shoes. You know, you've got the family perspective, the parent perspective, your experience with intervention, uh, your experience in accessing, the, you know, the administrative challenges and ups and downs of things like the NDIS, etc. What do you think we could be doing better at in, in, in the world of ASD? Where, where are some of the gaps, do you think, at the moment? Yeah, look, I feel... In regards to services and, you know, just speaking not just with other families but even some therapists, but there are lengthy waits on services, which means that families could be waiting, you know, three to six months, maybe, you know, up to a year to get into seeing a paediatrician, a diagnostic service, speech or, you know, occupational therapist. So this can be really upsetting when you're seeking help but cannot access it straight away. And families feel the strain and helplessness during this time. Mm. So there is most definitely, I feel, a great need for um, more access to these services. Mm. So access to diagnostic services to begin with, so people aren't waiting and, and, you know, feeling exhausted and frustrated as they wait. Yeah, and look, I to be honest, you know, I I don't know what what could be done there, but yeah, as I said, just the waiting time in between. Um, you know, you I suppose you know if if someone's sick or you know they've got a cold, they might go to the doctor, and you know if they can't get in same day, maybe it could be in one to two days, and that's yeah. fine. Like yeah. you'll you'll get in, but you know when you you know when your heart's set on you know getting in and receiving a service, you know receiving help for your child and then to be told, oh, there's no availability at the moment, we'll put you on the wait list, mm. but then you d- you don't even know how long it could be. So they, they might just give you an estimate and they might say, oh, look, it might be three to six months or, mm. you know, I've known some people who said, oh, yeah, it's about a year to get in to see this person. So um, that's really hard mm-hmm. on a parent. Mm-hmm. So to try and, um, yeah, to try and decrease the wait times mm. would be amazing. Mm. So the, the need to access professional diagnostic services more more quickly in order to fast-track intervention is, is one thing I'm hearing very strongly. What do you think as a society we could be doing better at ASD? I, yeah, I think there needs to be um, more education on creating awareness and acceptance of autism. Mm especially as I feel in today's society, if you don't know an autistic person directly, maybe you might through a friend of a friend. Mm. So 
I just think, yeah, to create more awareness and to 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 bring it up to be speaking more openly about it yeah. would be a big benefit. And and a government level, do you have any thoughts about that? Not that we can necessarily do much, it, but I think if you've if you've got things like this book and some advocacy happening already, and certainly this is a wonderful resource. Who knows? It's yeah, the limit. So, what would you say, Look, Jade? I, based on my experience, may I feel the government again could provide education mm-hmm. um, on autism in schools, and not just for children, but uh, for educators as well. Yeah. I've had the privilege of going into a few schools early education centres and colleges to read my book and many teachers have reached out to me afterwards saying that there needs to be more education on this. So, um, yeah, if I did have a say and could recommend something, I'd probably go down that path. fantastic. And I think, uh, you know, we had a – I interviewed a couple of professionals a couple of months ago now around – supporting kids with special needs in schools and, and and their views around where there might be some gaps. And it did, it did come back to that point, actually, that you've made. It came back to education, um, you know, education of the educators, the, the need to upskill them, essentially, and build their awareness in, in special needs so that uh, they're less daunted, maybe, by working with kids with special needs and feel more prepared um, to offer strategies and to feel more confident themselves in in how they work with kids with special needs. Absolutely, Jade. What are your coming coming to this point about the school system? What what are your views on things like inclusion in mainstream school systems versus uh, you know special schools and support units, etc.? Yeah, I'm I'm all for education that includes everyone learning together in mainstream schools. Mm. Our family's experience on inclusion has been very positive. Mm. So OSC is in a support class located in a mainstream school. Uh Here he gets the extra attention and support he needs Mm. as numbers are capped at 10. Mm. But then he joins his mainstream peers Mm. for recess, lunch, um, weekly sport, excursions, school activities and and all assemblies. So I can't speak for all families yeah. raising a child with a disability, but for our OSC, mm-hmm. this is the best outcome as it gives him a good balance of learning at his own individual pace mm-hmm. in a quieter environment, which he's comfortable with. But then there's the social gain of being with his mainstream peers, mm-hmm. which is really important mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. So there's that balance, isn't there, of the individual assistance or the smaller learning support? And the and then the exposure to the broader uh, sort of Absolutely. culture of the school and all of the activities that go along with that. Yeah, and look, Matt and I would have loved to um, for Oscar to go completely mainstream. So you know, his whole day in a classroom setting, sure. but but that doesn't as an individual and his needs that would not suit him. For him to be in a class of you know up to thirty students where um, you know, he he wouldn't get um, a lot of it, you know, individual attention. Mm-hmm. He just wouldn't thrive in that environment. So, um, although our local school did welcome us um, and were happy to to work together to support Oscar, mm-hmm. um, we we love the idea that look. He's still mainstream. He's still around his peers, and you know, and that's really important. But in terms of the learning and focus time, he, he's in a class where he's going to get that extra support he needs mm. and we've really seen him flourish from it. So mm. um, it's been very positive to date. And I think, it, again, it comes back to that idea of building blocks and, and adding things in at the right stage in development, really remembering that, you know, there are developmental transitions and stages that have to happen for kids. So, you know, for some children who do have more support needs than others on the autism spectrum, it is better to start, uh, you know, in a support class in a mainstream school or even in a special school. Um, And then over time, as skills develop and as they uh, have more exposure and as their own development progresses, then you can shift uh, environments and and that can happen more gradually in a way that's better paced for the child rather than, you know, at either end of the spectrum, feeling that only one model will ever work um, or that 
all children should be in a mainstream classroom full-time. As you said, that's a nice ideal, but it's not necessarily what's always best for the child themselves. So coming back to that point that you made earlier about looking at your own child's individual strengths and weaknesses and looking at where they're at in their development and, and maybe sometimes that's, that's letting go of ideals but being prepared to focus on what's going to work best and be the best fit for them. Yeah, so we're focusing on, obviously, you know, we would love for one day for Oscar to um, transition into the mainstream and we are open and we would, as I said, Matt and I would love nothing more than that. Mm. But what what absolutely would have failed would would have been if we had just put him in mainstream. Like Mm. we we didn't want to put him in mainstream and then, you know, and then take him out there. We'd rather just as he's ready, you know, at his own pace, mm. just build him up. And then when he's able and comfortable, should that day come, mm. by all means, we would, you know, we'd, we'd love to put him there. But for him, I just think it's a great balance. Yeah. But, you know, every family every family is different. Mm. So, you know, some people, um, you know, have bored and, you know, their children are in mainstream and then other people, you know, they're quite happy for their child to, you know, maybe be in a specialist um, school as well. And that's fine. I think at the end of the day, as long as the parents um, have that choice um, and, you know, and if their child is, is able to, to have a voice too and to speak up, then I think, then I think that's okay. The need for choice and the need, I think, to set kids up to succeed as you've said, you know, so that, uh, yeah, if you're putting them in an environment where you know that they may fail from the beginning, you don't want them to leave and then have a bad experience and, and try and come back to it later, that's a hard, that's a hard one as well. Mm-hmm. What do you feel most hopeful about for Oscar at the moment? Look, Oscar is a beautiful boy, um, blessed with a great village of people surrounding him. So... As long as he's surrounded by love, encouragement and support, I know he'll be okay. What a great, what a great summary. And, and so with, with that in mind, if you, you reflect on where you've kind of come from, from the first uh, concerns around possible loss of skills and, and Matt, as you described, that early, you know, Googling, those Googling days of, of comparing <laughs> Oscar's development to checklists and, and trying to access yeah. the GP and get into a paediatrician to now, what what do you think is is some of the, the or one of the greatest triumphs that either Oscar or your family uh, yep. would want people to know about? Our family is big on celebrating and sharing in Oscar's wins, mm. no matter how small. Mm. And he's, I should say, he's definitely taught us not to take anything for granted mm. and for that we love. So you know, just last week it was his birthday, and for the first time ever he attempted and blew out his birthday candles, which was amazing. It was really sweet to see. And the encouragement from Banjo and George, just, you know, the joy in their faces, you know, we all celebrated in on that. And, yeah, so obviously that's a very small win, but we but we took it and we happily shared that with, um, with many people. But if I had to say to date... Um, one of the proudest moments would for us be toilet training Oscar. So I had big reservations uh-huh. on how we would conquer this milestone. Well, I think all families I... have reservations. Whether they have got, <laughs> well, it's true, yeah. The moment that I'm muddling through with and, uh, yeah, whether you've got a child with special needs or not, it's, it's quite a journey. So yeah. Exactly. So, you know, for us there was the extra layer of challenge in Oscar being nonverbal. Oh. So that's where a lot of my reservation came from. However, uh, with the assistance of his therapist and daycare, we all worked um, as a team and we managed to do this just after his fourth birthday, which was awesome. And I'll never forget the smile on his face the day I told him no more nappies while holding up his first pair of undies. <laughs> it was, um, yeah, it was really, really nice. That is brilliant. Jade, um, I, I think people listening to this podcast would take so many positive, uh, you know, perspectives and, and views from, from hearing you speak the, the, and, and, and very practical and helpful advice as well. You know, I've, I've 
I've I've picked up on the need for um, people to set realistic goals around intervention that that are very measured and carefully matched to their child's individual uh, profile or strengths and weaknesses. The openness to uh, you know being looking at evidence based approaches. The the ability to celebrate small wins. Um, and the importance of that within the family, the need to balance across the family um, activities so that you don't feel you're tipping too much in one direction in terms of the child with special needs or, or equally, uh, you know, taking, taking, uh, taking up activities that may not be around their interests so you set the family up to fail as well. And, and that general idea of setting up to succeed in lots of different ways with schooling, with intervention, with family life... Um, but the great positivity that you exude, uh, I think, will be something that people will listen to and take great heart from. So I uh, thank you very much for your time um, this morning. Thank you so much for having me. It was it was really lovely to, to chat and, um, yeah, I really appreciate it. What an honest and uplifting discussion. I have no doubt that families and professionals listening to that interview would feel inspired by Jade's positive, realistic and practical approach to living with ASD and her reflections on her family's journey thus far. I strongly encourage you all to purchase Jade's book, Understanding Oscar. The direct link to Jade's website where you can purchase a copy of the book is www.understandingoscar.com. Jade's Instagram and Facebook pages are both at Understanding Oscar, and we'll have all of those links in the show notes for you. Thanks for listening, everyone, and take care. The Annie Centre podcast was brought to you by Annie Centre Proprietary Limited. Please visit anniecentre.com and subscribe to receive the latest updates and digital downloads from Dr. Anne Shalfant.